Welcome to Amplify. to Deirdre Gibbons' How to Make the Water Sound, performed by the Fidelio Trio. And we'll hear from Deirdre about her new string quartet, Dark Matter Hunting, which receives its online premiere by the Pacifica Quartet at this year's West Cork Chamber Music Festival. Also in this episode... The intimacy of good quality camera work and good quality sound. You know, you get a front row view with middle of the stalls sound. You can benefit from hearing, yeah, fantastic performances in fantastic venues. West Cork Chamber Music Festival Artistic Director Francis Humphreys on this year's festival, the challenges of putting on an online festival and more. This is episode 46. Hello, Yvonne. Hello, Jonathan. So this week, our focus is on the West Cork Chamber Music Festival, which, given the year that's in it, is an online festival for 2021 and features work by Irish composers Deirdre Gribben, Fanola Merivale and Gareth Knox. Well, 2021's festival, it's so different um, in so many ways, isn't it, Jonathan? Like it's not in beautiful Bantry and it's not squeezed into two weeks. And I use squeezed in deliberately because, you know, as anybody who's ever been to the festival will remember, there really never seems to be enough time in the day. The concert schedule is so tight and so attractive that you just want to get to everything But of course, the year that's in it, the times that are in it, Francis has had to take a very long look at how he approaches the West Cork Chamber Music Festival as an online festival. But I think a lot of the ethos of the festival remains, Jonathan, and and that should be acknowledged. You know, the programming of contemporary works by composers from Ireland and abroad and the all-important commissioning of new works from composers from Ireland and abroad, which Francis tells you more about in your chat with him. Yes, we'll hear from Francis later on in the podcast. So you spoke to one of the commission composers by the festival, Deirdre Gribben. Yeah, as you've mentioned, Jonathan, Deirdre Gribben has a new work at this year's festival, Dark Matter Hunting, being performed by the highly renowned Pacifica Quartet, but written for the equally highly renowned Doric Quartet. And I must admit that I'm a big fan of of Deirdre's quartets and her chamber music. And, uh, you know, a new quartet is always a great occasion to look forward to. So I started by asking Deirdre about how her connection with the festival, which didn't start today or yesterday, as we know, came about. West Cork Chamber Music Festival is an incredible little gem of a festival that, you know, we are so fortunate to have in Ireland. The quality of players, the vision of programming, it's it's superb. I just love hearing wall-to-wall concerts and just having my tickets and going there. It goes back a long way. Francis uh, Humphreys heard a piece of mine and, and then it was my piano trio, actually, that uh, How to Make the Water Sound was performed there. 
And then after that, he commissioned the first uh, string quartet for the Van Brugh Quartet, which uh, was called Amazing Face. That began my connection with the Vanbras, which was also amazing. And I found with that festival that often when you work with players, you don't have that opportunity of building up a big relationship with the player. You might have a really great working experience for that period of time. But what that festival has done is really introduced me to players that I, I then continue to have working relationships with that for me, it makes the writing of the music much more meaningful. So the festival then commissioned a piece called Speaker's Corner, which was for the Van Brugh Quartet and Joanna McGregor, which was a pretty wild piece. And more recently, I was introduced to the work of or the playing of Nurit Stark, this wonderful violinist based in Berlin. And I was commissioned to write a piece for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. And that was a very personal piece for me because my great uncle Freddie fought in the Battle of the Somme and he survived and was incredibly injured. He had mustard gas poisoning, which uh, really affected him. And I, there were family stories about great uncle Freddie and about coming back and pretty much a young man's life destroyed. The piece is called Devil's Dwelling Place and there's a, a wood near uh, one of the major battle sites, which was called Delville. So that's where that name came from. It, it had a lot of uh, very strong personal connections. And I suppose that piece, in a way, I've always written about personal experiences, but maybe in the political sense, but that was a f the first piece that really was a very personal, familial piece. It was a Soul of Island piece. And, and it just had, it made me think very much about that generation of men going to war and how their lives were just so affected and that the women that were left were affected because there weren't many survivors from that battle. So, you know, the whole history of the thing became very, very strong. Thank you. 
from that, I developed another work with Nurit and uh, a singer called Carolina Mesler, who heard that piece at West Cork. And I wrote a song cycle for them called Kindersang, which was based on the poems of kinder transport survivor called Lottie Kremer, who came on one of the last kinder transport trains. And it was the 80th anniversary of the kinder transport in the year that I wrote the piece. So that um, was a very important work, very long 40 minute song cycle and a very clear narrative about her life in Germany with her parents. And I met Lottie, who's now in her 90s. Uh, it's an extraordinary moment. And the first thing she said to me was, I lost my mother. Do you have your mother? And I said, no, I lost my mother too. But it was really incredible connection that she still had that connection with the past in Germany. And she still had a little bit of an accent, although she'd spent most of her life in the UK. And when we did the performance in London, her son came and her granddaughter. And there was something incredible about that. So that all came out of the West Cork Festival and that the substantial nature of those works and the connections with the musicians, it's very strong. So I'm, I feel very privileged in a way to have had that sense of connection with, with the festival. You know, West Cork Chamber Music Festival has been so instrumental in the development and nurturing of new talent. And you've been very much part of that, the the composer competition. I have, yes. And I've um, been fortunate enough to have judged that competition on a few occasions. But one of the really interesting things is, is the context of that. Um, Francis invites emerging string quartets to come or emerging string ensembles or, or chamber ensembles to come. and be in masterclasses at the festival. So they're mentored by established musicians. And I would just go in in the mornings and listen to those masterclasses. And there's something about seeing the young musicians playing and melding and shaping the music. And then there, the people who play the composition, the young composers winning pieces. And that to, to see that connection building from the start is so rewarding. Then we do this open session. It's like a masterclass where the audience can come and watch the process. And that's 
I would consider the most important role for the composer uh, taking the masterclass at that point to to guide the process of um, be, making the work seem familiar to the musicians, which sometimes takes a lot of effort because it's a new piece. There's no reference points and you've got players who are playing it, but just to give them the sense that it's new, but it also has this inert musicality, which the composer uh, is communicating to you. And often it just needs tweaking with dynamics and changing registers. So I would often say, you know, maybe could we try that a little bit faster or and think about the register? Or what about the timbre? What happens here if we try harmonics? So so there is that little sense of, of just letting composers and the audience members see what it's like to develop a new work. And for me, it's not hard and fast. The piece is never finished. I'll go away and I'll rewrite it, but I'm not the first person to do that. You know, lots of piece people have done that and, and we can see that in Janacek, he, he would go back and, and sketch and add things. And that comes out of that interface with the musicians and to be able to say, actually, I prefer it that way, although I've written it like this, you know, to, to, allow that to happen and that's something quite wonderful because then it becomes the piece of the musicians rather than the composer for example um dark matter hunting was written for the doric quartet and unfortunately they couldn't play it last summer because of the whole covid situation and they will be playing it next year but i've been to see them play a number of times over the course of the beginning and the writing off so i was really thinking about them in the writing I went to meet them. I've had discussions with them several times as well. I often do that. This piece I knew was going to be quite big. It's 35 beyond, maybe nearly 40 minutes. That's quite a substantial, probably the biggest string quartet I've written. And it feels like a very important piece. So the sense of connecting with the players, of course, you don't always get the chance to um, work with the players that on that level. But when I can, I will. I'm really fortunate that this work has also been played by the Pacifica. And that was a, a, a nice surprise, actually. you develop I suppose a, a kind of relationship with them then Deirdre in the kind of rehearsal process that has taken place in the lead up to the recording did they set up any kind of you know session where you could virtually sit in on rehearsals or how did this work I did actually and through the Covid situation for the last year I've had a number of live streams and there's, it's difficult. It's a really difficult situation for a composer to be in because the, the sense of balance that you, you get through Zoom isn't great. So it's hard to know what's really happening. But they had set it up in a 
a concert hall situation. So the quality was actually very good. And we had a very, very long rehearsal where they'd play through. Um, they'd obviously spent a, a long time learning the piece because it was incredibly well played. And then the tweaking of it was very much to do with things to do with balance. But I would always put the caveat of I'm not there, so I can't really hear if that's what the real balance is. But I have a feeling that this should happen. So in many ways, the re the rehearsal skills are different because you have to allow for the potential that actually that might not be what you're really hearing. So um, in many ways, that was a very purposeful, joyful experience. And I had felt almost removed from the process. That interaction that a composer needs with the musicians when their work has been premiered or new work has been unfolded is I hadn't realized how precious that interaction and the small bit of input that you need to, to have into the piece and that I had missed. It's a substantial work, you say, you know, it's 40 minutes and it's taking on as well, taking on is perhaps not the right phrase, but it's a big subject. Dark matter. Um, it's you say in your program notes, I suppose, a mystery of uh, outer space. You know, it's not the first time that you have, I suppose, referenced science in, in your works. But why dark matter hunting and why did you feel drawn to this kind of anniversary piece for the Hubble telescope? Well, I had a fellowship at Trinity College, Cambridge for two years and met all sorts of extraordinary people, including writing a new work for the new master, um, uh, Lord Rees, who was who is the Astronomer Royal. But one of my really close friends there was an astrophysicist called Priya Natarjan. And her subject is black holes and dark matter. And Priya is incredibly skilled at making the subject seem so accessible to the public. So I got really interested and she would send me images from the Hubble telescope and, and we just got talking about the potential of working on a piece. And it came about that the commission, um, what happened to be in the, in the anniversary year. So I began to investigate dark matter and read so much about it for over a year and talked to Priya and met with Priya and, and discussed the, the whole subject. And basically, in a nutshell, from my layman's point of view, you know, most of the universe is made up of a material that we can't see. And the presence of this unseen mass stops the spiral galaxies flying apart. So if you take the galaxies, and in the 60s, this amazing pioneering scientist called Vera Rubin she um, she was the one who discovered that when the galaxies are spinning, when they get furthest away from the centre, we'd expect them to just go really fast. But actually, it didn't. And it was the opposite. So some gravitational pull was making them not do that. And they know that that then was proof of an existence of something that couldn't really be seen, but was really manifested in a kind of energy. So that for me was the spark behind the whole notion of push and pull and gravitational pull in the music itself. And we can 
detect this gravitational pull on objects and we can observe it looking at how light bends. So um, images from the Hubble will show, for example, one of the movements is called Einstein Cross and it's an image that came back from the Hubble telescope of, and actually Einstein predicted that this might happen. And it's an image of light and it looks like there's four points of light, but it's not. It's the one point of light that is being bent and split and that's been bent and split by some invisible substance in front. Um, I hope this kind of makes sense, but I was trying to make sense of it when I was writing. So that's some of the things about the energy of dark matter that inspired the music. An extract from Deirdre Gribbon's Dark Matter Hunting, performed by the Pacifica Quartet. And you can catch the full performance of the work online from the 25th to the 28th of June at the West Cork Chamber Music Festival website. That's westcorkmusic.ie. And continuing on with our focus on the West Cork Chamber Music Festival, we have a conversation with the festival's artistic director, Francis Humphreys. And Yvonne, it's quite a feat, isn't it, at what Francis and his team in Bantry have achieved over the past number of years? To build audiences really from nothing, Jonathan, you know, all across the years to now having a situation pre-COVID and I I hope with the online version as well that uh, they've had sold out concerts for challenging repertoire, you know, in a rural town that, as Francis acknowledges, is quite a hike from the major urban centres on the island. Um, You know, it's just an inspirational story. I think a story of artistic vision from Francis, his energy and drive and um, you know, leadership in bringing others with him to support that journey and complete problem solving approach to to everything, you know, to create this magical musical experience in Bantry. It's been quite a few years since I've been down there at the festival, but, you know, very vivid memories of the town being a buzz with international and national stars of chamber music, you know, and bumping into those people in the shops and pubs and hearing works that don't get really programmed elsewhere in the kind of course of the year in chamber music concerts. And a very vivid memory of sitting very close to fellow audience members on the stairs of Bantry House, which of course is a million light years away from uh, our current situation. And uh, that very small view of, of the concert that you get when you're sitting on the stairs into the famous library, that beautiful, famous library of Bantry House with its gorgeous acoustic listening to Dvorak when perhaps you've been a little too tardy at securing your ticket. So here now is West Cork Chamber Music Festival Artistic Director Francis Humphreys. Oh and a quick word on the sound quality in the interview. Unfortunately it's a little flaky in places but 
We hope you still enjoy it as there are some really fascinating insights from Francis. Well, it's, yeah, it's 31 concerts. We started the end of May, and it's going on until mid-July, I think. We're taking a break during our literary festival. In the pre-festival period, we're doing three concerts each weekend, and then during the festival, we're doing 14 concerts over 10 days. Um, Irish works, there's Deirdre's new quartet, Finola's violoncello duo, and Alex Petku is playing a piece by Elaine Agnew. How different does this year's festival feel uh, compared to previous festivals? Because it's all online, isn't it? It's a different bird altogether. We had actually programmed 130 concerts for this year. They weren't full concerts. They were mostly 45 minutes Because we were anticipating very small audiences allowed into a venue. So, you know, we were doing an international concert for 20 to 30 people. And the only way I could see we could get anywhere near the kind of box office that we need to make things happen was to put on lots and lots of concerts and to have them running at the same time. You know, you'd have a choice of three concerts at any one time. And that's a model we're looking at again for next year because I, I really don't know what next year is going to be like. As regards doing it online, we all know the limitations. There are two pluses. One plus is that you really can reach an international audience if you can get them to log on. <laughs> and the second thing is that the intimacy of good quality camera work and good quality sound. You know, you get front row view with middle of the stalls sound. You can benefit from hearing, yeah, fantastic performances in fantastic venues. And do you think what you have experienced and, and I suppose learned through doing this, I mean, you're, in, you're, still, you're still doing it, you're in the middle of it, but um, do you think that some of, those, some of those experiences might influence future festivals? I suppose you're aware that Lyric is under pressure, shall we say? Lyric always used to record all the concerts. I didn't want to lose that record and broadcast and offer to EBU. So it was a worldwide reach for us. So I felt it was important to carry on recording. So we're going to probably film as well. It's just going to need bigger budgets. There's no two ways around it. But the current minister seems determined to get the arts a bigger budget. So let's support her as best we can. Uh, you know, I mean, that's stunning that she got that huge increase. And if she can hang on to it and maybe add to it over the years, it will be a game changer, you know, instead of really scraping the pennies, which is what we've been doing for the last 24 or five years. It's a chance to, for instance, do things like recording and filming concerts. It's always been an issue for us with filming because 
the spaces are so small. And that's why I'm thinking we might be looking at doing more concerts with fewer people at each concert, um, leaving space for cameramen. I had a conversation with, with, with somebody recently and they were they were talking about this this you know future anticipating the pressures of putting on a festival in a post-pandemic world where we've experienced for over a year performances online and there I suppose will be an appetite for audiences to continue to be able to have the option to look at concerts online and um, this person was making the point that you can't really do both you have to do one or the other. It's difficult. Yeah. You do see films of live concerts. It's not impossible. Um, what we do down here in Bantry is deliver the impossible on a regular basis. That's our plan, anyhow. You see, the other thing that's coming up is the devastation wrought on aviation and international travel. There's going to be a carryover from that, and that's a big worry. Because we're very dependent on Cork Airport. If we have to fetch everyone from Dublin, that's five hours down here. The trouble is the pandemic has really pulled the rug and it may never go back to anything like it was before. And, you know, musicians can't come here by train, which is what they're doing all over the continent, you know. And certainly some of the quartets I've spoken to and some of the musicians have said, you know, this is something we're going to have to look at. We can't go zooming off on planes all around the world all the time. Commissioning has been a very important part of of your festival and you have consistently commissioned new work over the years. Can you tell me why it's been such an important part of your programme? If you think back in time, the Vambra Quartet were there with me at the very beginning and they were regularly commissioning. They kind of set the ball rolling. All I did was was pick up and and run with it. Uh, And they did those recordings with Deirdre Gribbon she came in very early. She had, The first time we commissioned her was back in 2000, I think. Vambra recorded all those works, so it seemed good to perform them and to keep performing them. We've done a lot of international commissioning as well. And lately, I get international festivals approaching me and saying, will you co-commission a piece? Which seems, on the face of it, a good idea. But actually, it sends you to publishers who have a very different view of things. The idea of commissioning is to put some of the money that we get into the hands of the composer. There's other issues with the contracts. When you start reading the small print, they don't like you putting stuff up on the festival archive. They don't like you handing lyric-taking recordings and broadcasting them. They just go out of their way to make things difficult for you. The other extraordinary position I'm in at the moment, I actually have five commissions. I've not heard. So there's Deirdre's piece, which we're going to hear shortly. There's two from Brett Dean. There's a piano quartet that was postponed. And there's uh, Sebastian Fagerland. He'd been here, so they asked me to join in for bassoon and string quartet. We're in an odd position at the moment. There's all those pieces going to have to be played next year. And we've got the same situation with the, uh, the composition competition. We've got seven unheard works. <laughs> You know, they've been given their prize money, but there's no performance and no workshop. So again, we have to do all of them next year as well. With commissioning, it's not just you and the composer. You've got to have musicians lined up. You know, you, you write to the musicians say, would you be interested in performing something by this composer? And they say, well, I don't know. I've never heard of him. never heard of him. So you then get hold of recordings and scores and send them. 
And more and more top-level musicians offer very little repertoire each year. You really have to twist their arms to do something extra. We always try to move away from the beaten path as much as possible. But, you know, the Vanbrugh weren't responsible for a lot of the parish quartet commissions. That's kind of the issue you're looking at, is finding people who will take on new commissions. What's interesting in Bantry is we were around for 25 years now, so the musicians who 15 years ago or 20 years ago would have really played anything I asked them. Now a different story because there are big names now and they, like I said, they have very, very focused and concentrated schedules over, over the year and stretching years in advance. So that their latest recording comes out, you know, 18 months after that piece has gone off their repertoire. It's not straightforward asking musicians to do something that's not actually in their fingers at that particular moment. It, it's tricky. It's tricky. But, you know, young musicians are going to be more interested in doing other works. You mentioned Deirdre Gribben and, and she's um, there's a new commission from her that's going to be done in, in the festival. And you've worked with her, I think you, you mentioned since 2000. There's been a number of, a number of commissions, a number of performances over, over, over that time. What is it about her music that makes her a good fit or that you're drawn to? I just find her music very, it's very attractive and musicians want to play it. I mean, the Pacifica, who are no slouches, uh, have, have done the the, so to speak, virtual premiere. It was actually written for the Doric Quartet, who are coming next year. So they will give it its live premiere. The Pacifica may go on playing it. I don't know what the schedule there is, but it'll get its its live Bantry premiere from from the Doric Quartet, who will also be playing the uh, the Brett Dean Quartet. She's very supportive of our young composers competition she's you know happy to take that on it's actually quite difficult to get people to uh, 26 scores this year that's quite a commitment of time so there were three prizes of a thousand this year i'd love to be in a position to increase that and to have maybe more than one composer assessing the scores competition that's been running since 2008 in what way does that fit into the festival what have been the sort of effects if you will of the competition on the festival over the years well it's linked directly to the quartet masterclasses so each of the four or five masterclass um, quartets 
is given one of these new scores who, A, workshop with whoever the workshop leader is each year. Each of the young quartets plays a new work. So they are forced to um, work with... The idea is for the, we pay for the, composer to, the young composers to stay here for three days. So they get a chance to work with a composer, which I think is an important thing for young performers. This festival's always been around string quartets because of the Bamba day one, of course. An awful lot of composers you go to, and I'm doing an awful lot of electronic music and so on. That's much more difficult to fit into our schedules. <laughs> and we don't have time, basically. The rehearsal schedule is, is like crazy. When you see on a composer's website that the main interest is in composing electronic music, then my eyes glaze over, I'm afraid. If their interest is something completely different, then maybe that's not the right person to go to. Our other uh, project is we want to build down here. We want to build state-of-the-art chamber music venue with masterclass spaces. There'd be teaching spaces all year round and spaces that can be used for all kinds of local activities as well as musical activities. You see, one of our ways around the, um, the flights issue has always been to have musicians stay at least five days, is what I say, and, and, and ideally longer. And I think that could be an issue with um, musical residences. There's a tremendous push for spaces for musicians to go to, to have time to practice under good conditions and to be able to do some teaching as well. And that, that's kind of my vision for the future down here. And it'd be great if I could get that done in my lifetime. <laughs> The ending of Fanola Merivale's The Silent Sweep As You Stand Still, which features in this year's West Cork Chamber Music Festival's concert by Mairead Hickey and Ella Van Pauk on the 28th of June. Details are available on westcork.ie and in the show notes for this podcast. You'll also find a list of all the music used in this episode in our show notes. 
That's all for this week. We'll be back shortly with our final episode in the series before we break for summer. Until then, thanks for listening.